0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. Now, as of this recording, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, as we arrive at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, I do this every couple of episodes. I'm going to do a little shameless self-promotion. I have no shame in doing this. So, first of all, if you want to follow the show and get a full episode list, listen to all the previous episodes, some of the great guests, incredible topics, fascinatingnouns.com is where you go. Now, at the bottom of the website, you will notice a link to my newsletter. Now, this newsletter will keep you up to date on all things Fascinating Nouns, plus other podcasts, other projects, Upcoming episodes and everything kind of going on with the world that I'm creating. So that is FascinatingNouns.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for the newsletter, which I promise you will only come out once a week. And now for the obligatory social media. Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn. Facebook, backslash Fascinating Nouns. Now about that page. It has been called America's Page, America's Sweetheart. Everyone's favorite Facebook page. You will fall in like with it so much You'll find a little button there. Click it, and your life will be complete. That is social media. Now, today's episode, we're going to talk about pinball. Now, I kind of fell in love with pinball in the early days, back when there was Aladdin's Castle and arcades, and everyone was going there to play the newest and craziest video games. I, for some reason, one of those guys who always, when people went left, I went right. I kind of I felt bad for pinballs, kind of the neglected unused portion of the the arcade and it seemed really cool lots of flashing lights but it was hands-on and you you got to bounce this little ball around and for some reason I just I love the interactivity of this thing instead of a mindless zone moving a, a joystick you really had to have some skill with this thing loved it I've always loved pinball Uh, And I got really good at pinball in my first internship ever. It was a South Park pinball machine. And I played the crap out of that thing, which I totally should not have been doing, considering I was getting paid to be in an internship. But we're going to leave that here and all my millions of listeners. It'll be our little secret. That's how I kind of fell in love with pinball. And I also learned that there's a lot of quirky history with pinball. Like, for example, it was illegal for about 40 years of the last century. I had no idea that it was considered such a, a crime to play pinball. Who knew? Uh, and It was this kind of stuff that led me to want to find a historian, and I found one. Seth Porges. Now, he's not only a pinball historian. He is all over all different kinds of media. He's done so much that I could not possibly get it right. I will do it absolutely zero justice. So, Seth, thank you, first of all, for coming on the show. And tell me, what have you been up to, man? What What do you, what do you got going on?
1: Yeah, so sure, I, you know, I spent most of my career as a magazine editor. I was editor of Maxim Magazine and Popular Mechanics Magazine. I write for a ton of different publications, uh, mostly about technology, some men's magazines, all that fun stuff. Um, I'm on a couple of TV shows on History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery, Travel Channel, Talking Head, Panelist, Presenter, kind of stuff. Mostly talking about science, technology, history, history of science, history of technology. And I run a startup called Cloth. It's a uh, fashion app that's relaunching in just a couple weeks, you know, around the end of October, and it's going to be really fun. So I hope people get check that out. Then.
0: You were also on Cash Cab, right?
1: I think Cash Cab in two thousand six, long time ago. But no, you know, they still current. rerun those things every once in a while. I get a, like a whole bunch of texts from people who are randomly watching
0: TV. <laughs> and it pops up. Hey, So, how did that work? I mean, that's one of my favorite shows. I mean, it's so amazing. Was it really random? I mean, did they did you really just like, hey, I want a cab, and then you pop in, and then the lights come on, or is it there's something going on? There? I
1: don't know what secrets I'm allowed to vo- to, oh. vo- to about it, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's. I wasn't, I think you might just have to hail cabs and wait for the cash cab to pick you up to find out.
0: Hmm. Mm. See, I worked on Jerry Springer, and so I don't know if I'm, I I was pretty tied to a pretty long secrecy contract. So were were you tied to that too? I mean, did you have to sign a bunch of things saying? You
1: know, I'm not sure what I sign. I'm just, you know, better off not taking any chances. All
0: right, but you're (laughs) on it. It's amazing.
1: I was on episode,
0: yeah. If I can find it, I'm gonna link it to your page on uh, oh, <laughs> through I, my I website. I think
1: there might be some video of it online without any sound.
0: Oh great! We'll just add our own sound. <laughs> um, so, and you are, uh, you also did this really cool documentary. Obviously, I trolled your web page on Action yeah. Park, and I'm bringing yeah, it up it, because yeah. it's so cool. <laughs> you can talk so, about it.
1: Yeah, so I produced this uh, documentary short about Action Park, which we kind of perhaps uh, kind of slanderously call the most dangerous amusement park that ever existed. And uh, you know, if anybody's not familiar, Action Park was a sort of legendary amusement and water park in New Jersey in the 80s and 90s that really developed an enormous level of notoriety just for the sheer number of injuries and the sort of uh, ridiculousness of some of the rides that exist there, the kind of physics-defying mousetraps you would never find anywhere else.
0: Wow. It's, it, when I was watching the documentary, I was kind of blown away because it, it felt like an, 80s, um, like an 80s movie like Meatballs or something. Like something should be set there. Like it's a great setting for like a you know teen, sex, coming-of-age kind of movie. You know, know,
1: you're not the first person who says that. I'll just leave it. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, I think everybody, you know, the reason Action Park sticks with a lot of people and the reason people really, I think, responded to the documentary, and went kind of crazy viral on that, is uh, it kind of represents to a lot of people just this time before insurance, if you will, this time before everything being rubber padded and safety tested to an inch of its life, this time when... Things were a little bit more chaotic and free-spirited and freewheeling, and yes, dangerous, but if you survived, you don't remember it being dangerous, you remember it being really fun. And that's what Action Park is sort of the pinnacle of this sort of lackadaisical sense of oversight that really roamed over a lot of culture in the 80s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just couldn't believe it existed, but I'm glad that it does, and (laughs) you did a great job with it. Um, but speaking of danger and things flying out of control, our topic today is actually pinball, which you are an expert in, the history of pinball.
1: Yeah, I like to think I am at least sure. Pinball. Pinball's one of those you have, you have really fascinating things to me. What's that?
0: I said you have to be. We have to be an expert. Yeah, I have
1: to be. Pinball um, pinball's really fascinating to me because, you know, growing up I always viewed it as this very kind of plain vanilla, unassuming, harmless diversion. This kind of like all American carnival game and it really never occurred to me that anybody could do it as anything else. And then once I started looking into it, I realized that for decades and decades and decades the reputation and image of pinball was the complete opposite. It was viewed as this enormously dangerous and malevolent and evil force <laughs> and governments went crazy trying to regulate it and ban it and police departments have pinball squads and it just the, the the sheer you know the difference between my perception and perhaps most of the listeners perception what pinball is versus the way it was viewed for so many decades which is so striking and fascinating to me
0: yeah I, I when i was learning some of these like little known facts i could not believe that either i mean we're talking about pinball yeah. pinball things that people barely this is a game people barely play anymore but it was considered oh. like it was like smoking i mean it was as you know dangerous or as popular as smoking in the same kind well, of room. I'll take
1: umbrage with your, um, you know, you saying that people barely play it anymore. But I don't understand what you're saying. It, it's one of those things, you know. So pinball, we have a little bit of background here. Pinball was illegal in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, most major American cities, pretty much from the 1940s through the 1970s. And the reason for this is it was viewed to be a game of chance and not skill, and thus, according to the logic of the time, that meant it was gambling. Mm. And there, you know, this is right after Prohibition, 1930s, 1940s, when sort of anti-pinball fervor sweeps the nation, and it really was part of a larger sort of moral crisis occurring involving gambling. You know, back in these days, i like to say that people, they, they like to kind of latch onto unifying theories of badness, if you will. This idea <laughs> yeah, that yeah. all of society's ills and evils can be traced to this one thing, and if we get rid of this One thing, everything will be better. So through 1920s, that one thing was alcohol. Mm. And so prohibition was this attempt to heal society by getting rid of the root of all evil which people thought was alcohol. And then the next decade, people kind of moved on to gambling with the view being that this is what is breaking up families and ruining lives and destroying people and causing mob violence, gambling. If we can only get rid of gambling, everything in society will be better. Now, pinball was a big part of this, and pinball was perhaps the, you know, a target like none other in the anti-gambling craze, because unlike other gambling devices now, to back up some early pinball machines did have cash payoffs, and other pinball-like games definitely have had cash payoffs as well. But unlike slot machines and other gambling apparatuses, pinball was viewed as a game that was appealing to children. And so why, while old guys would be blowing through their paychecks after work on slot machines, that's one thing. But children, unassuming children, being lured in by the flashing lights and the ringing bells and this you know, unmistakable allure of this pinball machine, that was viewed as uniquely evil. The idea being it would be kind of like a gateway gambling device that would lure children into its, to its jaws at a young age and never let them go. And that was why pinball was viewed as so dangerous.
0: Uh, now, why did it, did it, were children really into this game? I mean, were there, was there any kind of evidence to say that they had some level of support for that view?
1: Well, sure. So, pinball, you'd want to look at, like, why and how parents and adults could have been so afraid of pinball machines' effects on their children. It's a very familiar story, um, 20th century history, where every several years something is, you know, that parents don't quite understand needs to be targeted and regulated and banned. You know over the years it was comic books or hmm. explicit lyric music or violent video games. I mean the same thing happened again and again and again. And Pinball was sort of one of the earlier incarnations of it and perhaps one of the most severe. And, you know, if you look at historically what occurs is People, generations get really, really upset and really, really crazed over something. And then it happens again and again and again. Every time, it's with a little bit less severity. So Mm -hmm. with pinball machines, they went to town. You know, they banned them for decades. Police raided pinball halls, all this stuff. You know, by the time you get, you know, many, many decades later to rap music, you know, they're having people on TV talking about how it's bad, but there's really no serious effort to smash these things with sledgehammers and burn them in, you know, demonstrations. So it really was just an early example of adults not, you know, basically being afraid of something that kids were doing that they didn't get. And the idea was that youth culture, something that parents couldn't supervise or that parents didn't understand, there must be something harmful about it. There must be something dangerous and evil about it. And that's something we've seen pop up again and again and again.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I didn't think about it, but, I mean, I've gone through everything that you mentioned was at some point, like, affected like my youth was affected by it one of these the thought that oh this is evil I mean like I remember in the 80s Dungeons and Dragons was like the big thing people thought there were there was cult sacrifices and people killing each other I was like it's you know it was a bunch of nerds like sitting around throwing dice you know I knew these kids I played D&D and I don't remember getting involved in any cult practices but like I mean what you're saying is so good
1: yeah even like like Elvis you know like in hindsight that was you know compared to any music today it's super G-rated, but back then, oh my God, that was the scariest thing in the world for parents. Yeah. And uh, you know, oftentimes people realize, you know, back then I don't think people were sophisticated to realize this kind of controversy could be this wonderful commercial boon and make things sell, publicity. Nowadays, of course, a lot of these moral crises are, are, are highly calculated on the part of companies and marketers who realize mm-hmm. that there's no better way to get attention than to seem bad, and seem wrong, and seem evil.
0: Right, that's a, that's a good point. That's a really effective marketing strategy. I mean, you know, it's funny. Is even now, I mean, for the most people, now when I said most people don't play pinball, obviously there are, there is a group of people who play pinball and probably a resurgence going on right now. But for the average average person that I know, pinball is something they like but didn't know that it's, it's active. I just saw an article sure. two days ago that there's a big Lebowski pinball machine being unveiled. I think it was unveiled September 30th. You know, there's a yeah. the, uh, there's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. People are making putting that together. You know, I mean, there's very sure. modern pinball machines being made now.
1: Yeah, so so, so a little bit of background here. Uh, you know, the pinball industry really kind of peaked uh, in the early 1990s. You had a lot of big hit games. Seems like the Adams family, which is to this day the best selling modern pinball machine ever made. And, um, you know, this is when a lot of people, certainly in my generation, these are the machines they remember because arcades were still around. You would run into these classic games, and they kind of have a really deep grooves in our brain, I think. But then, uh, you know, the pinball industry kind of went the way of the arcade industry for a while. It kind of catered out and disappeared, and video games moved home. But pinball machines didn't really have the same kind of home-based analog that an mm-hmm. Xbox would have, you know, the way an Xbox replaced a stand-up right. arcade game. There's really no home analog for the pinball machine. So the pinball industry kind of suffered for a long time. And in 1999, the largest pinball company in the world, uh, Williams, which also owned uh, Valley, which is a, another huge pinball company, they, uh, they shut down their pinball division. And this, there's actually a documentary about this called Tilt, which might be streaming online. You should totally check it out. And it's about how in 1999, WMS Gaming, which owned Williams, It was a large publicly traded company by this point, and the pinball division was just a really small and money-losing part of the company. They were making most of their money on things like slot machines, because the casino industry is very big. Mm -hmm. And so the company went to the pinball division, and they basically gave them one last chance to save their jobs and save the industry. And they said, come up with something new, come up with something innovative, something that will be a game changer and kind of release, you know, spark a huge resurgence of interest in pinball. So the pinball designers and engineers, they go back, they come up with this new concept it was something called Pinball 2000. And it was kind of a hybrid of pinball machines and video games. So you had kind of holographic images projected onto the screen, onto the playing field. And you hit them with the balls and you do all sorts of cool stuff. It was super, super high tech. didn't really look like any pinball machine at the time. And it did okay. Like people liked it. Sales were okay, but it wasn't enough, and there's sort of some conspiracy theories that nothing would have been good enough, like they determined they were going to shut down the pinball division, There's really nothing they could have done to singular their job at that point. But uh, only two games were made using this platform. Uh, one was Revenge for Mars, and the other, and this may have been kind of responsible for why it didn't do as well as many people would hope, once you hear us, was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Oh, which you can you can imagine when they got that license, they must have thought this is going to be the biggest thing ever. <laughs> right. Everybody's gonna want a Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace pinball machine, and then the movie <laughs> just kind of sucked. Yeah, and, and in many ways, it's really not a stretch to think like, wow, the the uh, suckiness of that movie probably had a huge effect on the future of the pinball industry because of this. So in 1999, Williams shuts down the pinball division. They were an eighty or ninety percent market share like the, the gorilla in the room the, the
0: wow. big big
1: big company and there's only one other pinball company left and it was a much smaller company called CERN and when William shut down CERN is left as the only pinball company left in the world making you know actual pinball machines and it was like that for years where you know pretty much since nineteen ninety nine there's only been one company until just about the past year or so. And now you have randomly this huge number of Pinball startups kind of starting up So um, probably six Or seven of them have announced Machines that are in various stages of Production including the Big Lebowski Machine you mentioned which is a company called Dutch Pinball Based in the Netherlands But one of them has put a machine Out for sale a company called Jersey Jack Pinball it has a Wizard of Oz game and Pretty soon they have a game based on The Hobbit Excuse me The Hobbit coming out But five or six other machines Are announced in the works from startups And that's really exciting to think that Suddenly, you have all of this new blood and startups and people trying out new ideas in the pinball world.
0: Yeah, and I was also reading something where there's more at-home pinballs, like the the market share, the commercial market share is shrinking and the at-home market share is growing, which kind of blew my mind.
1: Well, so the pinball industry, you know, you can find pinball machines sort of in the wild, as you will, um, but it really has shifted over the past 15 years or so towards a collector, baby boomer, game room kind of market. And those are the people who, by and large, are buying new pinball machines. There are, especially you know, in some cities more than others, like New York and Portland have a lot of great places to play pinball, and they have distributors who play pinball machines in different bars and laundromats and different kinds of fun places. And you can find machines to play if you know where to look. But a lot of the new games are being purchased by... Uh, you know, a lot of baby boomers, a lot of older people, I'm not saying that's old, but you know, people who are well off, if you will, because it is a luxury item that takes a lot of space in your house. Yeah. Um, they're the ones who are buying a lot of the new games. And uh, yeah, I mean, there just aren't as many public places to have pinball machines since the arcades kind of disappeared. There aren't a lot of bars, but um, not that many.
0: Yeah, bowling alley is always what I think of when I think of pinball. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, that's the first I'm place
0: I, the first place I played them, and it's the only place I know that has every every bowling alley I know has three pinball machines.
1: That's yeah. I mean, people go to bowling alleys to go to play games, so yeah. give them a pinball.
0: Yeah. Right. Why not? Uh, well, so now let's yeah. let's let's go backwards a little bit, back to the dawn of pinball history. Sure. Now, sure. Now, how did this game form, and when?
1: Yeah. You know, my favorite sort of uh, rant on this topic, um, Murakami, the author. He wrote a book called Pinball 1972, in which he very eloquently goes over the, the birth of the first um, modern-ish pinball machine and compares its development to the rise of Hitler, which is weird. Okay. Um, but I like it. it's, You should check out this book, uh, Pinball 1972. It's okay. perhaps the best book about pinball. I don't know. Um, novel, there's pinball as a side plot. But anyway. Pinball evolved from a French parlor game called Bagatelle, which is sort of like a mixture of pool and, uh, I guess, a pachinko board, something kind of that looks like it. And then these pins sort of in the middle, hence the name pinball. They're Mm -hmm. oftentimes in the early days called pin marble games or just pin games. And the machines that existed back in these early days, the, the first, what's often Described as the first commercially successful modern pinball machine was a game called Ballyhoo, which was developed by a guy named Raymond Maloney in the early 1930s. This game was a monster, monster, monster hit. Um, It actually gave birth to the Bally Corporation from the name Ballyhoo, which later had spinoffs in things like fitness clubs, Bally Club of Fitness, Mm. and uh, casino hotels. Like, Bally's in Vegas. These all started from this pinball company, interestingly.
0: Wow, I did not know that.
1: Yeah, kind of cool, right? Yeah. And so the first commercially successful modern ish pinball machine was this game called Ballyhoo. And there was sort of like a ton of pinball machine companies that kind of started up at this time because it was really a game for the time. This is Great Depression era. People uh, got on their luck looking for a distraction from the bread lines and the doldrums of modern life. Uh, found in pinball machines, it was a really cheap form of entertainment. You pop a penny in, you get some entertainment out. And uh, some of these early games had some cash payoffs, or oftentimes they would get around anti-gambling laws by giving you free games. Then you could go to the operator and exchange those free games for cash. And this is actually really similar to how Japanese pachinko parlors today get around anti-gambling laws. Apparently, you don't win money, but you do as you win prizes. Like. Animals and dolls, and then you trade those prizes back in for money. Oh. So as long as you have like an intermediary step in the gambling transaction, apparently it's not as illegal. <laughs> places, That's a, which is really kind of
0: this that, so, so you so you could you would trade in the things you earned and then sell them for money. So that was like an intermediary device to use. Yeah, to, to hold your but value.
1: Oftentimes, exactly. Oftentimes what you trade in would be a free game. So you'd win a free game and then cash in that free game instead of playing it.
0: Um, so, uh, well, let me, let me back you up one second. Yeah. Um, so the, I just want to make a couple quick historical points just so we can, because I'd like to have sure. a step ladder of history. So in 1871, there was, a, there was a really big invention. And if you know the patent number, uh, I will send you a million dollars right now. I, I'm not that. He does not know it. Okay. His <laughs> patent number uh, 115,357 for improvements to Bagatelle, and it was the, the coil shooter, right? They had just invented a coil spring, and this is kind of what set pinball apart from Bagatelle, which is more like pool with, like, cue sticks, right?
1: Yes, exactly. The thing. So you have, a, you know, it's very similar to the, to the plunger device that's used in modern pinball machines. You just kind of pull it back and shoot your ball out. So this really was, you know, one of the very few design elements that modern pinball machines still share with these really, really early games.
0: Wow. And, and then in the 30s, Kind of this, it was that was a transition period because that's when all the innovations came into play, right?
1: Yeah, and that's when you know it pinball kind of came into its own, and that's when people got scared of it because it was becoming this huge force, this, this game. And so, as I said, this kind of moral crisis erupted around film machines. But you have to remember, like pinball machines back then, they didn't look anything like pinball machines. There were no flippers. The flipper wasn't invented until 1947, and so the games basically involved you plunging a ball and then. Knocking it, a bunch around amongst, amongst, uh, knocking it around a bunch of pins, trying to get it into different holes, and those different holes would give you different point values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really isn't much like modern pinball machines. You would nudge the machines, you'd shake them a lot to get them to go where you're going, but chance was a much larger component in the gameplay than the modern pinball machine, which had flippers. And flippers are sort of a conduit. Of skill, right? So this was so more flipper, like skee-ball,
0: right? This is more like skee-ball before the flippers.
1: Yeah, kind of skee-ball or like a modified portable golf game almost. <laughs> okay. You know, you're, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just trying to knock a ball into a hole and different things happen. Hmm. So, it, you know, they weren't, they were very simple, very primitive, not electrified often, all the time. And they were, they were these really cool mechanical machines. And it didn't very much resemblance to a smartphone machine. And because there was no flippers, because the balls were sort of chaotically bouncing around. And I love to kind of get in the mindset of the people who are afraid of small machines is try to imagine how these (laughs) were so scary to them. And it kind of to me feels like it's the chaos of it. Like this ball is wildly bouncing around and it goes against everything they believe in. These are people who want like order in the world. They want they want things to be controlled. And that ball is something you can never control. And that to them, the same way like long hair might represent freedom and lack of control and rebellion. The fact that that ball was bouncing wildly around with, without anybody telling it what to do, that seemed <laughs> like it might have been something scary to these people.
0: I think you're onto something. I think there's something to that lots of flashing lights, a lot of noise, you know, yeah. people like order like quiet and that there's pinball machines are not quiet.
1: No, no. The early ones weren't as loud as these ones, but they certainly you had this ball going around and there was nothing you could do to make it go where you wanted it to go. And in a world in which People were being taught that we need to control things and we need to understand the universe. This ball was this, this bit of chaos that we could never fully control.
0: Um, now I want to make one point here. Uh, the pinball. Now it's called pinball because originally there were pins in the machine, like actual like pins, yeah. like almost like nails in a way. It's. I was thinking about this, and it's kind of. I, I imagine this is the same way Europeans feel when they hear the term football for our American football, because when I hear pinball. And they're in bowling alleys. Like, pinball is a better name for bowling, right? Because it's a bunch of, you're throwing a ball sure. at a bunch of pins. But I, I just always wonder if that's like what Europeans, like, if the feeling I'm feeling right now is how Europeans feel when they watch and hear football.
1: You know, I think the name stuck, and as the game evolved and the pins went away, nobody. Had, you know, there was no smoky room to the side. We're no longer going to call these games
0: pinball. Right. Like, it yeah.
1: just, like, the names just kind of stuck, and the same manufacturers were involved yeah. once the pins kind of worked their way out. And there were some games, you know, later on, decades after, that still had pin-like elements involved. So it was a really kind of gradual evolution. Like, if you look at the modern pinball machine versus the, the, the ancient one, let's say, um, all of these features that we kind of now expect to appear in the machine, they all appeared, you know, that somebody had to do it first. And they kind of all evolved almost naturally. The symbol designers looked for bells and whistles, oftentimes literally bells and whistles, to put into their pinball mm. machines um, as ways to make them stand out. And sometimes features appeared in one machine and were never seen again because they weren't of the kit. Mm. And then sometimes things like the flipper, Turned out to be so successful that eventually every single game had it. Right. So it's really kind of interesting to look at sort of the natural selection and the trial and error and A B testing that, that went into pinball development over the years as some machines tried out things and didn't really quite work out.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the innovations that came in in the 30s. Because this is when sure. there were t- a lot of the stuff that was there be- has become standard pinball. That was kind of like the foundation of pinball as we know it today. Uh, sure. I, I guess culminating with the flipper in in forty seven. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about some of the innovations.
1: Yeah, sure. So the flipper is probably the biggest defining game changer for pinball. So pinball, you know, the reason it was illegal in so many places was it was giving the game a chance to that skill. And the flipper was really almost a calculated attempt to kind of put more skill into the game. And the first flippers didn't look much like the modern flipper, like we're all used to kind of two flippers at the bottom of the playing field that you would use as sort of a control base for shooting the ball anywhere else. The first game of the flipper was a game called Humpty Bumpy. It came out in 1947. I believe it was designed, or at least the flipper part was, by a guy named Harry Williams, sort of a legendary guy in the pinball industry, one of the most famous uh, innovators back in that time in the pinball industry. And the game had six flippers that sort of lined the outside of the game facing away. And you couldn't really do too much with them as a result. You kind of keep the ball in play maybe a little bit longer and maybe get a few lucky shots off of it. But the the idea stuck, and the flipper stuck. And before long, just about every game had flippers in it. And the flipper itself evolved. You know, you look at some of the earlier games in the 50s and 60s. The flippers are much shorter than they are now. Um, and these games are much harder because the gap in between the flippers is so much bigger. Which, if anybody's played pinball, you know there's nothing worse than having the ball it's just kind of go straight down the uh, middle between the flippers.
0: I hate that. And that was
1: much, yeah, the chance of that happening go up the shorter your flippers are.
0: Well, and they were also facing the other way for the longest time. Actually, yeah, flipping them around them. was a huge in- innovation as well.
1: Absolutely, they were. You know, they they weren't. They, they were facing outside, and there were six of them at first, and they were really short, and they didn't really, they weren't the central defining aspect of gameplay and game control. They were one little thing that went in, in addition to sort of the nudging mechanism that people were used to, mm-hmm. and eventually the, the flippers sort of came to dominate the way you would interface with the game.
0: Well, it makes sense, because, and I'm I'm going to get the 30s innovations out of you, Seth, one way or the other. We're going to go right back to sure. it, I think they're important, but now the flipper, just, just to kind of put this into perspective, this was, this was such an innovation because before the ball would shoot up and basically if you were lucky it fell into a hole. If not, it came flying back towards you. There was no way to keep the ball going. You couldn't keep it in play. And, and the Humpty Dumpty ones from what I, from what I was reading is that th- they weren't very powerful. So you needed six of them to even get it up to the top. And, yeah. and in the 30s that when, when they had mechanical scoring – this was how you kept the ball alive. But I mean, think about it. Before yeah. that, you, it was just, pinball was a quick game. I mean, it was just boom, exactly. up, down, and gone. Now you can keep playing.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, I got a fact check this, but, you know, I think you had more than three balls in the early mm. days when okay. it was just kind of falling into a hole. In fact, five ball pinball is standard pretty much through the 1970s. Oh, okay. Um, you know, which is you know kind of interesting. So it wasn't just like three balls quick, you're done. Mm. And you know to think of it from the perspective of the the, the, the venue that has a pinball machine, the faster you lose, if you're still in it, the better they are. So
0: right. you know you can
1: make more money. People have to pop coins into these games. So right. is it a feature or is it a bug? You know, ask yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess you decide the coin you're on. Um, so in the 30s kind of some of the things that, that made this popular, uh, a lot of the innovations, where there was even the, the tilt switch, where if you if you hit it too much, and I don't want to go over this in yeah. a little more detail, the tilt switch, because I think sure. this is really important. This is, shows up in a lot of cartoons, uh, and I think we really need to kind of hit this a little bit harder. Um, but, you know, the back glass, you plug it in, they had scoring mechanisms, bumpers, all these things.
1: Yeah, so, so let's talk about the tilt for a second. The tilt, if anybody's played pinball and they get a little too rough with the machine, oftentimes they'll say tilt and you will lose your ball. And so a lot of skill involved with modern pinball players is knowing how to shake the machine just enough that you get the ball where you want it to go, but not so much that you activate the tilt mechanism and you lose your ball. And so the first game with tilt was a game called Broker's Tip, which came out in 1933. And it literally was was called a, a stool pigeon. And it was basically a small bell that stood on a pedestal above a metal ring, and when you push the machine too hard, the ball fell off the pedestal, hit the metal ring, activated an electrical circuit, and your ball would end, your round would end. And this is really similar to sort of how modern tilt mechanisms are. They're basically, you know, oftentimes just balls on pedestals, and you knock these things too hard, the ball activates an electrical circuit, and you're done
0: this is still how it works today i mean it's kind of like an archaic system when you think of all the digital improvements that could possibly be used but it's basically the same thing
1: sure and, and yeah you know the, the the tilt, you know player these weren't. this wasn't a feature for players this is a feature for the owners and operators of these games who didn't want people busting them up by just yeah. knocking into them really hard if you're getting a little aggressive and in the game you could damage one of these machines so the tilt wasn't attempt to keep people from breaking games,
0: really. <laughs> and, so. Well, it's funny because as I was watching some footage of professional pinball, and there is a professional level of pinball machine playing, uh, I didn't realize sure. how much that they really hit the machine. I, I've never hit a pinball machine in my life. Uh, and to watch yeah. them, it's part of the game. I mean, it's not It's not even like an option. I mean, it is, it, it is required to reach that next level of excellence.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you play pinball, no matter how good you are, eventually the ball is going to go where you don't want it to go. It's going to go down the out lane. So it's going to go straight down the middle. And part of being a good pinball player is it's like uh, being a goalie in soccer, like saving the ball, right? Mm. And a, right, a good pinball player knows how to hit a machine to get the ball to nudge in different directions and how to do it in a way that doesn't activate the tilt mechanism, whether how hard you can push it or how you push it, like different types of nudges activate the tilt mechanism in a different way, right?
0: Okay. And
1: uh, a really good pinball player can save almost any ball from going down the middle. Like you might play pinball and then instantly lose the ball and be frustrated and think there's no way to be good at this game. But these players who are really good, they sense that ball is going down, they've already nudged the machine so the ball is going somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. Or they sense the ball is in danger or could go out one of the outlanes they'll nudge the machine in a way that gets the ball to a safer position.
0: Now, that's the thing that's amazing to me because I play a lot of pinball. I wouldn't say I'm good, but I remember the first pinball machine that I really practiced on. It was the South Park pinball machine. I happened to be working at Comedy Central at the time. It's the only reason. Okay. And I remember like figuring it out that, oh, you can hold the ball on the flippers. Like That's one thing. And then yeah. you can kind of time it to shoot up. But there, it would always, you know, no matter how good I got, there were times where the ball would just come right down the middle, and I thought when I was researching pinball, I was thinking, "Well, how can you avoid that? I mean, that can happen to yeah. anyone. There's nothing. There's nothing you can do. I thought you were kind of like in God's hands at that point, but you're not. These guys can figure out a way to hit it where the ball. That's that's the beauty of being a champion is you figure out these ways to where guys like me don't know, and they figure out ways to be to excel at something like that.
1: Sure, absolutely. It's, and a lot of being a good football player is minimizing the times in which the ball is out of your control and chaotically bouncing around. Like if you're a really good football player, most of the time you are highly calculated and controlling of the ball. So you'll trap the ball, you'll shoot to a specific, specific place, and you'll know where the ball will sort of feed out from that shot. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of guiding the ball through the whole step of the play. And there isn't much opportunity for the ball to chaotically go somewhere you don't want it to go
0: right yeah it's it's amazing um now let's get now let's get back to to the history because i realized that we're so we're at like the 40s so now we've got the flipper so in a sense pinnacle uh, not the pinnacle of pinball but it's on its way up and it's kind of peaking like it's it's finally coming into its own it's it's a modern game and it's working people are loving it and then it gets banned so, I want to talk well, it was about. it
1: before the Flipper, actually.
0: Oh, when, when, oh, so these innovations were going on underneath the.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I'll, I'll tell you guys. So, okay, so here's. The, so, okay. anti pinball laws in various incarnations started popping up around the country almost from the minute pinball became a popular game in the 1930s, right? Okay. So, you have various anti pinball regulations in places like New York City throughout the 1930s. And, um, you know, but things really, really, really became different. And more aggressive in the early nineteen forties, when folks like Mayor LaGuardia in New York finally got full, total, complete, universal bans on criminal machines. There are a lot of sort of piecemeal legislation, you know, piece of legislation and bans on using machines for gambling or certain circumstances. And criminal machines in many cities fell in sort of a legal gray area for much of the nineteen thirties. But nineteen forty two, January forty two, just six weeks after Pearl Harbor, LaGuardia gets what he always wanted. Uh, which is a full and total ban of pinball machines. I'd like to say it's really not an exaggeration to say the number one priority of LaGuardia's administration, he was mayor for you know, a decade or so, he was mayor for a long time, was getting rid of pinball machines from New York City. And he's a very iconic, very famous mayor too, to say you know, the airport named after him, of course. Yeah. And he was absolutely obsessed with pinball machines. And the reason for this is, you know, I spent a lot of time actually looking into it and trying to understand why he hated pinball machines so much. And to me, it kind of seems like this intersection of his two greatest interests in life, one of which was he hated gambling and he hated the mob more than anything in the world. He hmm. kind of came into office and anti-Tammany Hall mayor candidate, anti-mob, anti-corruption, and he loved children. He kind of fancied himself to be a protector and guardian of the city and the nation's youth. So, this famous anecdote in the 1940s, when the newspapers went on strike, he went on the radio because he was so upset that the children wouldn't be able to read their comic strips they look forward to every morning, that he went on the radio to read Dick Tracy and other cartoons, comic strips, live <laughs> on the air.
0: Wow. So the
1: kids could have their... Mom. And it was a great video commercials. So, Laguardia loved children, and he hated anything involving gambling or the mob, and especially anything that he viewed as destructive to children. So to LaGuardia, pinball machines are just the worst thing in the world. And he goes to town on them. He really tries. He calls them in the media pinhorn slug, gambling, scumbag, mobster, goons. He just goes a ton on these guys. And wow. six weeks after Pearl Harbor, you know, when the nation distracted from things like the World War II, he kind of used this as an opportunity to push what he'd always wanted, which was the universal pinball machines. And overnight, the City's police. You walks into the office of police commissioner and issues an ultimatum: the number one priority for every cop in New York City will be to round up pinball machines and arrest their owners. Within one day, more than 2,300 pinball machines are confiscated, and well over a thousand court summons are issued. Within a week, I think some 11,000 pinball machines are confiscated, and the series of prohibition-style raids in which the cops would sweep through the entire city's gambling dens. And mob hideouts and taverns and stores and bars, confiscating machines and smashing them with sledgehammers and Jeez. pushing them over for the cameras. Really cool stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've seen pictures of this. He wasn't a big guy. He looked like a pinball. I mean, he was like kind of short and yeah. round, you know.
1: Very. Yeah. He was, he was known as the Little Flower because, well, Fiorello, was his name, <laughs> Fiorello meant Flower, uh, <laughs> but also he would wear a carnation of. The, oh, didn't. the media, if I can call him the little,
0: little short. I, I bet he loved that. So now, now yeah, this sure. is there. There are two interesting points in pinball um, that kind of, that kind of round out the history of pinball, in my opinion. And I just thought of these five sure. seconds ago, and I'm sure I'm not the first person. But right as 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 it's peaking, uh, in my opinion, like right around the five year period that it peaks, and then I'm including the flippers in that. It's banned. Laguardia goes on his rampage. Uh, a, a world, you know, a, a citywide ban on pinball, destroying it becomes enemy number one. Right as Pearl Harbor happens, which leads us into World War II, which, as everyone knows, we're, that was the war where everyone, you know, the, the manufacturing base of the United States switched to the war effort. So, pinball, yeah. which is now illegal, is not making any, well, not any, but hardly any pinball machines. Now, how did it survive that? How did it survive World War sure. II?
1: So a quick clarification here, you know, pinball wasn't illegal in the entire United States. It was illegal on a city-by-city, state by state basis. Um, It was illegal in Chicago, and just about every single pinball manufacturer was based in Chicago. So you had this really weird and to the pinball industry disheartening situation in which they couldn't actually publicly play the games they were making in the city they were making them in. So pinball machines, 1942. That's when sort of the, the peak of the bans are implemented. That's when they're banned in New York and Chicago, and I believe LA the same year as well. As well as by this time, they're illegal in a number of other cities. Um, and as you said, like the whole country's industrial apparatus is moving towards the war effort. And pinball, the pinball industry happened to be an enormous supplier of things like copper wire. So mm. they couldn't really make new pinball machines because the materials and parts are being rationed, and they need those factories to make parachute straps and munitions and and all that stuff we need to win the war. So the pinball industry, in an effort to sort of stay afloat during this time period, came up with this clever idea. They would create and sell what were called conversion kits, which would allow pinball operators to basically turn an old game into a new game by giving it new artwork, new playing field, a couple new parts. But all in all, it was a fraction of the material necessary to build an all-new pinball machine. And because of the era we're talking about here, this is you know, World War II just started here, um, the themes that were dominating these pinball machines were not surprisingly these kind of hyper-patriotic, wartime mm-hmm. motifs, things mm-hmm. like victory in the Pacific. And sometimes these motifs uh, veered into territory that today we might call even racist. They had one of them which was famously called Smack the Jack."
0: Which you know, isn't very PC. No. Sorry. Wow. So, um, they're still making them, and even in the fifties, you know, the the stat is that between the nineteen fifty and nineteen seventy, pinball made more money than the movie industry. So, while it is underground, it is the the potential, the the, uh, the amount of money, the profit potential that these guys are making is through the roof.
1: Well, it also was becoming kind of a cultural force. Maybe despite its illegality, but I like to think because of its illegality, right. you know, you 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 know, you look at pinball machines now and you kind of view them as this very, you know, docile, harmless diversion. But you know, these things were illegal for so 1976 in most of America, and so to anybody in this decades-long period, they knew and took for granted that this was an illegal and illicit, a bad thing to do, and so they became synonymous in cultural consciousness with rebellion or badassery or being an outlaw or breaking right. the rules. <laughs> and so anytime you know you look at any movies or music or TV shows from this period, uh, pinball machines often made appearances, and they were almost always a sort of a directorial shorthand to convey to the audience that a character was a rebel or a badass or a rule breaker. I mean, pinball machines are not insignificant props. These are giant machines, and if mm-hmm. you're putting one into a scene, yeah very intentional, right? right? And you're trying to say something with like that. So you watch old Happy Days episodes. They want to show the Fonz as a badass, or they show the Fonz next to a pinball machine, right? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. look at any of these movies from pretty much you know, the 1930s until the late 1970s, it was always, almost always, as a way of showing that characters are rebels or rule-breakers.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know, pinball was still making advancements during this time too. Um, I mean, that's yeah. what's so crazy about it is it's, the game is still evolving, I and mean, that just kind of blew my mind about this whole thing. Is it's illegal and it's still like making all these advancements. One of my favorites, which is the multi-ball, which is such a great yeah. idea. You know? Yeah. they like keeping so many. multi well, fun. Yeah, the, yeah, the multi-ball. Yeah,
1: it's fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's you know you you you're that is to me the multi ball is the thing that really can kind of fry out your circuits because you're constantly keeping so many things in play at the same time, but you can rack up your score and this is also a time when I think this is when um, like free games became kind of random where they had like the match play so the more points Mm -hmm. you have like then they match a random number and you got a free game isn't that how it worked?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure when that began. I think it was probably with some of the solid state games in the 1970s. I could be wrong, though. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, you know, pinball machines were evolving, and some of these advancements were sort of conscious attempts to negate the argument that pinball was a game of chance, not skill. Um, So the flipper, as I said, was, I believe, a very conscious attempt to inject Mm. skill into the game. And so, you know, the, the pressure of being banned for this reason in many ways kind of transform the game into perhaps a much more interesting and fun game than it would have been if it was always this kind of horizontal slot machine die-to-tell chance game, right?
0: right. Yeah. So
1: if you, they had something to prove, and that kind of allowed them to make more interesting games.
0: Now this whole story culminates to a moment in 1976. Yes. And I'm sure you know this moment very well. Let's sure. Talk, let's talk about that.
1: So pinball machines have been illegal in New York City from 1942 Until 1976, which is a really long time and a surprisingly recent point of time as well And some people like, wow, people are like, I was alive then, or I remember that And uh, so after 34 years in New York City, Mm -hmm. the pinball amusement industry had basically achieved uh, their long goal of getting a hearing in front of city council to evaluate the decades-old ban on pinball machines and their strategy was to prove that pinball machines were actually a game of skill and not chance, and thus the very logic for the band was null and void and negated and a no-go. So their strategy for doing this was they were going to bring a pinball machine into City Hall and have the best player they could find demonstrate his pinball skills for City Hall. And so they find this guy named Roger Sharp, who at the time was a 26-year-old editor at GQ magazine. Uh, he, you know, was actually interested, he became interested in the pinball world after writing a couple stories about it. He became kind of known in the pinball industry, but he also didn't officially work for the pinball industry, so he could kind of be a impartial third-party player, right? So they wheel a pinball machine into City Hall, and there is a really cool photo of this online, if you look for it. And uh, this young man is basically playing pinball in City Hall while councilmen and news crews and cameras and microphones stare down onto him in this high-pressure game of pinball where he's trying to demonstrate how good he is in an effort to save pinball. And he's actually calling his shots. i we going to hit the ball here, hit the ball there, hit the ball there, hit the ball there. Demonstrating, that he has control over the ball, and he knows what he's doing. Well, they're not really impressed. So he pulls back the plunger to start a new ball, and it's a Hail Mary move that, to this day, he likes to compare to uh, David Ruff hitting his famous shot in the center field. So he pulls back the plunger to start a new ball and says that Basically, based on my skill alone, the ball is going to go down the middle middle lane at the top of the playing field. He pulls the ball back, the ball bounces to the left, bounces to the right, goes right where he said he was. Very soon thereafter, city council votes to overturn the decades-old law banning pinball machines in New York City. And this kind of one dramatic shot was sort of the, the culmination of this highly cinematic moment.
0: Now, now, I read, now, not to add any more drama to this, to the story, that there were actually two pinball machines. He was supposed yeah. to work on one that he was very familiar with. They said, no, we don't want to use that one. Use this one. And it was one he had never actually used before.
1: Yeah. So they, so the they, they, you know, pinball machines were big mechanical things. They could break down. So they ran a second game as a backup. But the game that was the intended to use was a game called El Dorado that he was actually very familiar with and played a lot. and Played pinball before, you know that familiarity with the game is a huge predictor of success. Just simply mm-hmm. knowing how the game plays and what to hit, it's a really important bit of knowledge if you're going to rack up a high score. So, but uh, there's this one particularly antagonistic member of the city council who doesn't trust the pinball people. He thinks they have rigged the machine. He thinks they're scoundrels and mobsters, even in the 1970s, <laughs> and thinks he just can't be trusted. He says, no, you guys can't use that game. Use the backup. Bring in the backup. And so he was kind of off guard uh, playing this game that he had never played before, so which kind of made the, the whole scenario that much more challenging.
0: Yeah, it was a, it's an amazing story. And so that ended the illegality of pinball. However, well, in most places, but it's even in still... In New York City. In New no, York that was, City. that was just
1: New York. Just was New, New just, York City. But it's kind okay. of a big domino that fell that very soon thereafter, a bunch of other bands fell. And it's because, you know, that was sort of the, the big domino that sort of turned the tide, if you will.
0: And it's still illegal in some places, right? I mean, there's still Yeah, yeah, well, books. Mean,
1: yeah, so you know, pinball laws are highly local laws in many situations, and there are hundreds, of thousands of them throughout the country, and oftentimes uh, some people just never get around to overturning crazy old laws. And so only very, very, very recently, like weeks ago, I believe, was the ban on pinball in Oakland overturned. Um, there's a bunch of other places in which it's illegal for children under 18 to stand near pinball machines or kids to play pinball on Sundays. So all these anti-pinball laws still on the books in many places, um, not necessarily enforced, just people never really got around to getting rid of them.
0: That's amazing. I love I love blue laws and old laws that are on the books. I, I love that stuff. It's, yeah. uh, it's so crazy. Um, so now how wh- where do you see the future of pinball going? Because wh- I'm only jumping over the 90s because we kind of hit them. There was a big peak in the 90s. Um, sure. And and where are we going now with pinball?
1: Well, I'll say the one, let me just say 1P in the 90s. The reason yeah. the games in the 90s were so popular and so different is that the dot matrix display became very popular, and that's that little red animation display that tells you a score and sometimes has some videos and other stuff going on, on it. And that allowed pinball designers to build games with a lot more depth and a number more layers. So once you have a display kind of guiding you through the game, It allows the playing field to do different things at different times. So some of the older games are more static in that unless something's lit or not lit, for the most part, every shot does the same thing at any given time, right? You hit this ball here, it does the same thing. Once you add the dot matrix display, you can add story, you can add plot to the game, you you can add objectives, you can just make the level of detail and depth of what you're supposed to do in the game so much deeper. And that... Allowed pinball designers to kind of go crazy and make some really creative and interesting games with a lot more replay value because they were so much deeper and so much harder to master. Yeah, and that really kind of spawned that golden age of pinball machines, and that display still for the most part in every single pinball machine you see. Um, so, but where's about going? Answer your question. Well let's, well,
0: let's let's the future because you just you, you uh, got something. I want to talk about something else really quickly. You you click sure, something. Sure. You click something in my brain. Because I want to make sure. this this other point that in so 1976 this is when uh, Roger Sharp th- hits the the Babe Ruth shot it become pinball becomes legal then the next year 1977 Atari the arcade game becomes a home console system and that's when the video game boom hits so to me yeah. it's kind of like pinball is almost this tragic figure in history where you know it's it, when it goes down it goes down hard and when it comes up someone's still keeping it down. So I don't, you know, how did it survive the 80s? And then with the 90s, what you're talking about, I mean, it was, you know, the golden age in the early 90s. But it dropped off because, once again, home game console systems like PlayStation and, um, you know, Nintendo 64, those became really big and shut pinball down again. And and at that point, that's when all the companies went out of business, Right.
1: Yeah, so so the 80s were a mixed blessing for the pinball industry. Sure, you know, you had video games becoming enormously popular, but it also is when the, the arcade became a gathering mm, place, right. and arcades became home to many, many pinball machines. So it gave, you know, certainly there was more competition for amusement coins at this time, but there's also more venues for pinball machines to exist in. And mm. so, you know, you have a lot of arcades, and just about every arcade had pinball machines at this time. So the '80s, they really were mixed blessing. You know, by the time the early '90s came along, demo machines had evolved and adapted to be highly competitive with you know these primitive video games in terms of their depth mm. and their playability. Right. And and the arcade was still a place to go, and that kind of came together to create that little mini golden era in the pinball industry.
0: Hmm. Yeah, but then by the end of the '90s, everything everyone was out of business practically.
1: Yeah, you know, but 19, once uh, you know, 1999, once Williams shut down its pinball division, the only company left was Stern, and I said Stern was a small, small fry in the industry at the time.
0: Yeah, and I do want to make this is very, very important, Seth. I have to make this point right now. I'm from Chicago, and I want to make a point that all the pinball center of the world up until 2000 was Chicago, Illinois.
1: Yeah, yeah. as I mentioned, like every just historically, just about every single pinball company ever. Was based in the Chicago area or in Chicago. I mean, I don't know if you're from Chicago, you ever go to a place called Hot Dogs in California, right across the street is the old Midway Pinball Factory. You know, it's, I mean, you, once you start asking around, there's, the is everywhere there.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, okay, so now, didn't mean to stunt you. Future of pinball.
1: Sure. Well, you know, we're, we're in, this, in this interesting era where both there's a lot of excitement from startup manufacturers kind of creating new games. And then Stern, which is the last legacy company left, is making some of the best games they've ever made. And it's kind of interesting to see, it's, it, you know, I think some people might theorize that the pressure from these startups is causing Stern to kind of pick up its game a little and create some more interesting and fun and compelling games and sort of, instead of sort of like calling it in. So you're seeing some of the best games Stern has made in decades come out right now. And you're seeing all these startups announce and uh, release all of these really interesting games that try to push Pinball into new directions. So Jersey Jack, which put out the Wizard of Oz game, which is currently available, instead of the dot matrix display, they have a big LCD TV screen. And uh, that kind of plays clips from the Wizard of Oz and allows a whole ton of information to be on the screen. Some folks like it, some folks don't. But it's different. It's interesting and it's new and at least they're trying something else. Um, at the same time amongst the, the player community pinball is really bigger than it's ever been I mean there's pinball leagues I'm in a pinball league in New York City I've never seen this many pinball machines in bars as I have mm. in the past year or so and I've spent years tracking down and looking for pinball machines anywhere I went and and now it's just so much easier than it used to be I mean there's all sorts of great places at least in if you're lucky enough to live in a place like New York where you can find Tons of quality pinball machines to play. There's competitive play, there's communities, there's online forums. The pinball community and the pinball industry is really for certain and really kind of back in a really, I think, surprising way.
0: Yeah, and, and also, you practice what you preach, you own pinball machines.
1: I do, I, yeah, I have them yeah. all. I have I one from the seventies, Captain Fantastic, which is the Elton John game from '76, which <laughs> is uh, awesome. it's not the best game, but it looks really cool. Yeah. And then I have a, a really new game, a C D C game, which Stern made, which I think is like one of the better Stern games ever made.
0: No kidding. <laughs> and you, you put a lot of time in on these. Uh,
1: I I'll, <laughs> okay. I'm
0: not,
1: not going to admit how much time I put in. This, but,
0: yeah. Just say you can say a lot. <laughs> Tons. A lot of tons. Yeah. Full, full work days, eight hours. Um, well, we're, we're almost out of time. I, you, you nailed it, man. This is this is a topic I've always wanted to explore, and um, I, you really made it interesting. I, I didn't know there was so much to pinball. It's crazy.
1: Sure. Yeah. So
0: now how can people find you? Because you've got lots of stuff going on.
1: Yeah, you, know, you can find me on Twitter at, at Seth Porges. it's S-E-T-H-P-O-R-G-E-S. Shoot me a note, I you know, try to get back to most people. I read a lot of articles for a lot of magazines and websites, probably find them around. i on a couple of TV shows you might see on history and netgeo and discovery and travel, and you know, if you happen to stumble onto those, you can you know, wave at the screen, maybe. And um, my app, Cloth, uh, is relaunching later this month, uh, around the end of October, and it, you know, it's for people who are looking for it's gonna be a, it's a cool fashion app for basically saving your favorite outfits, chatting about them with your friends, and then a real-time search of street style, see what the rest of the world is wearing. I think so it's gonna be big. We're really excited, and you know it'd be cool if any listeners download it.
0: Now with this app, um, now I know there's a couple websites I just heard about them. You know, I've, I've, I know a lot of people who are in fashion, but there are websites where people can actually like basically be your personal shopper. Is, is sure. there any, are you are you going to tie that in with one of them where like you see something and then someone you find out where to get it or you guys deliver it to the house or send tailors to their house and no, make it for there's, them?
1: There's no there's no commerce or shopping aspect of the app at the moment. It's really just a way for people. You know, we spend a lot of time looking at how people are already using their phones and fashion and yeah, dress together. Definitely. And what they were doing, we just wanted to create a way for people to do those things in an easier, better, faster, more efficient way. So. Some people are already taking photos of their outfits to save them for later. Well, let's make a better and easier way to do that. Some people are already chatting with their friends, asking them about stuff as they get dressed, and asking what they think of outfits. Well, let's make a better way to do that. And people are spending a lot of time just searching for inspiration. Well, let's, find, let's kind of create the best way possible for people to see what the rest of the world is wearing with a high level of specificity.
0: Yeah, that's what's, that's what's amazing to me about that is you kind of know what's trending right away. You know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no fashion icon, but I know people who are, are very into what is happening right now and what better way to do yeah. that. How, fast, I'm, you know, how much more fast can it be than an app on your phone?
1: Absolutely. You know, if you want to see, when, when our new app comes out in a couple of weeks, uh, if you want to see like, what people are wearing on right now in Paris or London or Rome or LA, you can do that. By category, by weather, by color, by designer, if you want to see what people are wearing to weddings in Paris, you can do that by occasion. Um, we just felt like there's this great need for a really cool way of searching what the rest of the world is wearing, and we wanted to build that. So the app is called Cloth. If I didn't mention C L O T H, you can find it on iTunes, uh, you know, later this month, or go to clothapp.com.
0: Sounds awesome, Seth. Thank you so much for um, for coming on the show and talking about Binball, um, one of my favorite things that I thought was kind of underground, but turns out that I'm actually the one behind the times. Once again, my show is on the pulse of of the uh, zeitgeist absolutely so thanks for being here thank you um and thanks everyone for listening have a good night